Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order. We want to thank our witnesses uh, for being here on a snowy day. Um, the mo this morning, we're going to look. We're going to be looking for a different take on the Western Hemisphere. It seems like every time we have hearings relative to the uh, Western Hemisphere, we what grabs our attention is threats to democracy or problems like drug trafficking. However, recent political and economic developments in Latin America suggest there may be opportunities. I know you're going to talk about those today for the U.S. to ramp up our engagement in constructive ways. The Western Hemisphere is a region largely at peace and increasingly integrated into global supply chains where the tools of democracy are available to resolve conflicts and fostering economic growth, education, and the rule of law are shared interest. More importantly, it's a region where our neighbors are exercising leadership, particularly on the economic integration uh, front. This hearing will explore where we stand and hopefully allow us to identify concrete steps that we can take as a nation to influence outcomes in our mutual interest. Uh, we welcome our witnesses and will now turn to distinguished ranking member Senator Cardin for any comments he may wish to make. And I would say to you, it's my understanding that all three of these witnesses are Democrats. So uh, this ought to be a very good. Well, I really want to welcome this very distinguished uh, <laughs> panel that we have. I'm glad to see the chairman um, chose wisely the witnesses that we have before us today. So thank you for being here and I appreciate your, your input uh, on the Western Hemisphere. This is obviously an extremely important hearing dealing with our own um, neighborhood. Uh, 2015 has been a year of major change with the dramatic changes in the U.S. relations in Cuba to the elections in Argentina to the arrival of bold new leadership in the Organization of American States. This hearing is a space to analyze these changing dynamics and identify how the United States can take advantage of opportunities in a region that is fundamentally important to our economy, our national security, and our national interest. As we review the region's advances over the last year, one that cannot go unnoticed is how civil societies from Guatemala to Brazil raised its voice against corruption. Uh, I, I mention that because to me, one of our fundamental global problems is how do we get more attention to the spread of corruption. I was in Central America democratic countries, but to deal with the problems of corruption has been very, very challenging. So we, we saw renewed Latin America leadership regarding the critical situation in Venezuela, where alarming level of economic hardship and criminal violence prompted voters to elect the democratic opposition to a legislative supermajority. It would be interesting to, to follow the, that particular circumstances. In Colombia, and I know the Colombian president will be here this year, uh, a potential peace agreement uh, would end a half a century of conflict and provide an opportunity to promote a new era of broad-based sustainable development. Additionally, I want to recognize the Mexican government's recent capture of Chapo Guzman and the decision to extradite him to the United States. I must say, though, in all due respect, Mr. Chairman, that our policies in, uh, with Mexico would be much more effective if we could uh, confirm our ambassador, Roberta Jacobson. It's very difficult without having a confirmed ambassador, and I appreciate the chairman's cooperation in trying to get that done. I want to note the steady progress being made by Mexico, Colombia, Peru, and Chile to advance the Pacific Alliance trade bloc, which is demonstrating the advantages of strong democratic institutions and responsible economic policies. Uh, we have several trade agreements in our hemisphere, and they're critically important to us. 
But despite these opportunities, our hemisphere is not without its difficulties. And I put at the top of that uh, the concerns in Central America for the safety of its population. Uh, I had a chance to visit Central America and saw firsthand the challenges of people, families trying to grow up uh, with the influences of gangs and the protection of their people. And it's a humanitarian crisis, and we have to be engaged. I was disappointed, Mr. Chairman, at the actions of the Obama administration on recent uh, enforcement actions. I'm for enforcement of our laws. But these children need to be, have due process. These children need to be understood because they, if they are forced to leave our country, their fate is very much in doubt and their safety is very much in doubt. And I think we need to make sure that particularly children, that their rights are fully protected. And I would urge us to pay more attention to the humanitarian crisis in our own hemisphere, as well as, of course, the global challenges that we saw, uh, what we see in Syria and other countries. Finally, we cannot ignore the looming challenges surrounding Sunday's elections in Haiti. Once again, political brinkmanship is jeopardizing Haiti's chance for a broad-based economic growth and the Haitian people's efforts to continue rebuilding their country. So you can see, we have a lot of things to talk about and look forward to hearing from the witnesses. Well, thank you, Senator Cardin. I think you know uh, I support Roberta Jacobson's uh, nomination, and I hope that at some point uh, um, both sides of the aisle candidly will release that to, uh, uh, to be voted on. But uh, with that, uh, I'd like to introduce our distinguished witnesses. Our first witness is Mr. Mac McClarty, who served in the White House as Chief of Staff in the Clinton administration and helped shepherd the North American Free Trade Agreement through Congress. We thank you for being here. Our second witness is Eric Farnsworth. He's Vice President of the American Society and Council of the Americas here in Washington. Thank you so much for lending your expertise. And our third witness is Dr. Shannon O'Neill, the Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, we thank you so much, all three of you, for being here. Uh, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record, so if you would summarize uh, in about five minutes uh, what you'd like to say. Why don't you just go in the order that I just introduced you, if you would. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, distinguished members of the committee and staff, I'm honored to appear before you today to discuss the political and economic developments in Latin America and the opportunities, as both of you noted, for engagement of the United States in the region. I have indeed uh, been engaged for the past 25 years in trying to build cooperation between our country and Latin America in both the public and the private sector. Serving almost two decades ago as Special Envoy of the Americas, I am more convinced than ever that we have a shared future with the region. The decision by President Obama to normalize relations with Cuba dominated the headlines in the region and the recent summit of the Americas meeting, and understandably so. It was a historic moment, but it should not overshadow the rest of the continent. As both of you noted, we have a huge stake in the entire region, an area of 600 million people with a broad range of issues from trade to immigration, energy, education, narco-trafficking, and certainly uh, underscoring democracy. Overall, to be fair, we face a pretty complicated situation in the region. But in my view, the positives and opportunities largely outweigh the negatives. To be realistic, several countries in the region are facing the most serious economic uh, 
uh, times that they have seen since 2008. And that comes after years of robust growth, which dramatically increased the size of the middle class and moved a third of the country out of poverty. Those are positive developments, but they were driven in some measure by commodity prices, and now we see a fall in commodity prices, which was hitting many countries very hard. A couple of countries will have growth, but most will be flat to down. And so the real issue is whether this will have a ripple in the politics. Will it cause instability? We're already seeing some of that in Brazil, where President Rousseff faces growing opposition in Venezuela, as Senator Card noted, after a stunning victory in the polls, where the opposition did indeed claim majority in the parliament for the first time in 17 years. And in Argentina, Mauricio Macri swept aside a dozen years of Peronist rule by winning the presidency and has a much more pro-United States stance. But I, I would be careful to say there has been an ideological shift in the region. The truth is the region, like our country, is pretty equally divided in their politics. And in many ways, they are non-ideological. Somehow, they, the voters there and the citizens there are focused on jobs and education and health care and the environment, issues very familiar to you and all the constituents that you represent. Security is certainly a major issue in the region. It is good news in Colombia with the peace accord. I think it reflects the bipartisan and multi-administration support of Plan Colombia. And President Santos, whom I've known for over two decades, will be indeed coming here uh, early in February to celebrate that. The $750 million package of support for Central America under the Alliance for Prosperity was critical in stabilizing conditions there. I think the sharply drawn conditions of that agreement are important um, to combat the violence, corruption, and poverty that are sending thousands of desperate migrants on the southern border. Vice President Biden's leadership and engagement, I think, has been critically important. The United States meets Latin America at our border with Mexico. It's a powerful symbol, frankly, of what unites us and what divides us. Building on President Pena's reforms there, I think the United States should grasp firmly the concept of a North American platform, which was written about in a thoughtful, serious way by General Petraeus and Ambassador Bob Zellick at the Council on Foreign Relations. Trade and energy are at the heart of that, but I would underscore that commerce should go hand in hand with the support of democracy, human rights, and the strengthening of civil society. There is a natural linkage in the region with the growing Hispanic population in our country, and that will certainly help shape U.S. relations in the region in years to come. Finally, I would say that Article I of the Inter-American Democratic Charter states that peoples of the Americas have a right to democracy. Firm commitment to, the prom to that promise will be a measure of U.S. credibility in the region. The United States' relationship with Latin America is a critically important one in my view. Developments across the region indicate indeed there is an opening, an opportunity for the U.S. to, to engage in a purposeful, proactive, thoughtful way. And it's a moment we should, should seize. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Farnsworth. Well, good morning, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Ranking Member, members, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you on such an important topic. This, this hearing today is timely. Latin America is a region very much in flux. Hopeful indicators as we look ahead are mixed with real challenges, both political and economic. 
Citizens' expectations have grown significantly as economies have expanded and personal circumstances have improved, while a generation of democratic reforms has provided the means to register demands and affect governance. Latin America today looks nothing like it did even 20 years ago, and we cannot forget that. At the same time, 2015 was a year of recession for many and slow growth for all, and 2016 looks to be equally difficult economically. The question now is whether leaders will be able to show the continued progress their people demand and under what conditions. As recent elections across the region have shown, voters are seeking pragmatic solutions, rejecting ideology and excess, as Mr. McClarty has just indicated. In this context, Washington has as important and relevant a role to play today as we have had this century. Judicious U.S. focus on a bipartisan basis this year could have a lasting impact in strengthening and supporting positive impulses and trends while promoting a vision that draws the region more closely together toward a shared future of healthy democratic governance, economic prosperity, and security. This I believe to be a fundamental U.S. strategic interest. Democracy across Latin America is broadly accepted. When challenges arise, the United States, working with partners in the region and also multilateral organizations, must find appropriate means to support healthy democracies. Without U.S. leadership, the international community tends not to coalesce around active support for democracy in the hemisphere. By now it's clear, for example, that Venezuela faces political and economic difficulties that can only be addressed through political cooperation with the democratically elected legislature. Yet the government has taken a number of steps to undermine the new Congress. This threatens to become a full-blown institutional crisis with regional implications. Mobilizing the OAS and the UN, engaging with like-minded regional partners, and continuing to identify and expose illegal actions, including corruption and drug trafficking, will help hold the government accountable for its actions and decisions. And as an aside, may I just take a moment to congratulate you, Mr. Cardin, uh, for your leadership in organizing the letter signed by 157 legislators across the hemisphere uh, that put the focus squarely on Venezuelan democracy and helped achieve the results of the December 6 elections that are now having such important consequences in Venezuela. We've also seen recent elections in Argentina and Guatemala that provide an opportunity to build a new agenda. Since his December inauguration, Argentina's new president, Mauricio Macri, has already taken a number of actions to liberalize the economy and has also spoken in support of democracy issues at home and abroad. His mandate offers the prospect for enhanced engagement with one of Latin America's largest economies, which Washington should actively explore at the most senior levels. In Guatemala, the new president was elected on a wave of popular revulsion against corruption and can serve as an example with U.S. support of transparency and inclusion going forward. Corruption issues have also touched Latin America's largest democracy, Brazil, and will play out to their conclusion over time. The good news is that Brazilian judicial institutions are strong and meaningfully responding. Economic growth will also be a challenge for Brazil this year and the country, as the country looks for ways to generate new growth. This is exactly why, in my view, now is the time for Washington to lean into this bilateral relationship. The United States and Brazil share significant interests in agriculture, education, energy, healthcare, the list goes on. In the wake of the visit last June of President Dilma Rousseff to Washington, we should be working purposefully together now in support of each of these agenda items when Brazilians, in particular, in need of economic growth. From a U.S. economic perspective, North America should be a priority, requiring us to work intensively with our Canadian and Mexican partners to develop an even more competitive, unified economic space. This will require greater collaboration on trade and investment relations, supply chains, energy integration, and borders. 
Given our close interconnectedness, we should also be thinking bigger about North America, working collaboratively as a region on the issues that impact our citizens the most. Further, North America can be the foundation on which we build out the broader hemispheric economic agenda. For example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, once passed and implemented, will include all three North American nations and also Chile and Peru. The Pacific Alliance is an exciting regional economic initiative that includes Mexico, Chile, Peru, and Colombia. Let's bring all these U.S. free trade partners together, inviting Pacific Alliance and North American leaders to join together to develop a broader agenda for regional economic engagement. As a strategic matter, this would change the game in the Americas. We also have to note the seismic shifts that energy markets are having in the Americas and note the technology and know-how and management expertise that the United States can offer to countries who desire that. Let me briefly say one final word about uh, security issues, if I may. Building a secure society, including cyber-related issues, is fundamental to maintaining the gains that I've been talking about in terms of economics and democracy. Mr. Chairman, this year offers a historic opportunity to essentially conclude the longest-running final guerrilla conflict plaguing the hemisphere in Colombia. As you know, President Juan Manuel Santos will be in Washington in two weeks, acknowledging the support of the American people on a bipartisan basis in Colombia's ongoing transformation while seeking new funding for implementation for peace accords that his government is working to finalize with the main guerrilla group, the FARC. Like the initial support for Plan Colombia, follow-on funding from the United States and other international donors to build peace will be crucial to solidify the gains and put Colombia on a path to development. And finally, working with partners in Mexico and Central America to address the regional security crisis in the northern part of Central America will help restore communities there that are being torn apart by criminal gangs. The appropriation of some $750 million to address these issues is a valuable contribution. Increasing security must go hand in hand with economic development, competitiveness, and job creation. And the United States will also need to remain diligent and supportive in working with Caribbean basin nations to address their growing security concerns as well. The agenda is large, but trends for cooperation are very favorable and perhaps more favorable now than they have been in some time. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, thank you again. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Neill. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee. I appreciate the opportunity to testify here today. And as the United States grapples with extremism and authoritarianism abroad, Latin America is largely a good news story. The region has changed dramatically over the past few decades, mostly for the better. Today, the region is overwhelmingly democratic. It's home to an increasing number of market-friendly economies with close ties to the United States, buying over a quarter of all U.S. exports, and so supporting tens of millions of jobs here at home. These more open politics and economics are supported by a sizable middle class, which grew by over 100 million people in the last decade. And while it does face problems, insecurity, corruption, and economic slowdown, the opportunities outweigh the challenges in the region and for U.S.-Latin America relations. So in my opening remarks, I'd like to talk about two potential areas where I believe the U.S. Congress can advance a positive agenda with the region. And these involve strengthening North America, something that Eric has mentioned, as well as supporting the proliferation of homegrown efforts to combat corruption. So thinking about North America. Sharing 7,500 miles of peaceful borders, Canada and Mexico now play a vital role in U.S. stability, security, and prosperity. And today, each of these nations is among the other's largest trading partners, with intra-regional trade surpassing a trillion dollars each year. And as important, we form together a growing regional production platform, 
So the back and forth across the borders of, making in, of the making of every car, plane, computer, flat screen TV, it means for every item we import from Mexico on average, 40% of that value was actually made in the United States. And for Canada, it's 25%. Now facilitating and deepening this integration and partnership will increase competitiveness, standards of living, and ultimately the ability to shape world affairs for generations to come. To do so, I believe Congress should focus on working towards the free and unimpeded movement of goods and services across North America's common borders. This will require reducing non-tariff barriers, revising rules of origin, mutually recognizing or harmonizing differing regulations, expanding preclearance and other proven programs for trusted travelers, and investing in border infrastructure. It also means passing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, of which our neighbors, Canada and Mexico, are a part. And finally, as been mentioned here already, it means confirming an ambassador to the Mexico. As the several months long absence of a top in-country diplomat, it slows the resolution of complex problems, it limits our ability to take care of, or take uh, advantage of opportunities, and overall it hinders our US national interests. The second area to prioritize involves combating corruption. And in the wake of the economic downturn, the region has seen a proliferation of corruption scandals. Some, particularly in Guatemala and Brazil, have led to high-level prosecutions and convictions. Others in Argentina, Chile, Mexico, Peru, have yet to show similar results, though some of these processes are ongoing. Now, while corruption revelations can undermine government credibility, particularly when they're not followed by prosecutions and convictions, the recent wave reveals significant advances. These include widespread passage of Freedom Information Acts, a movement towards greater public transparency, and expanding press freedoms in the region. It also reflects an active civil society and the rise in many countries of a true democratic citizenry. And the United States can and should expand its support for these efforts. And it can do so by first making anti-corruption a consistent element of US foreign policy in the hemisphere. So this means encouraging Department of State and other officials to consistently emphasize anti-corruption as a policy priority. It means calling for better coordination with agencies that actually have the tools to investigate and prosecute offenders. And it means using new tools, things like the new Global Magnitsky Act when it comes into law, using them to deny and revoke visas of corrupt Latin American officials. Congress should also expand anti-corruption rule of law programming in Latin America. Congress can champion and fund efforts to improve judicial capacity, train law enforcement officials, strengthen and professionalize independent monitoring and anti-corruption agencies, and generally support civil society-led anti-corruption efforts. I believe it should continue to back Guatemala's CISIG, and it can help the new OAS-funded support mission against corruption and impunity in Honduras. And finally, it can and should support Mexico's judicial reform process. Though scheduled to come online this June, in June 2016, implementing and importantly improving the quality of the new justice system will require significant effort, significant resources, and will take many years. Prioritizing North America and supporting the fight against corruption will enable the United States to improve bilateral and multilateral relations in the region. And as importantly, it will improve the lives of citizens throughout the hemisphere, including those here in the United States. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for your testimony. And, and um, Mac, you made a comment about the symbolic uh, border between us, and, and it's symbolizing a couple of different things. But to all three of you, 
we've had net migration between U.S. and Mexico at net zero, and uh, I'd like for you to explain, if you will, how that's happened and what factors have contributed to that. Let me start quickly, and then I'm sure my fellow, fellow panelists will, will offer their views as well. I think it's a combination of factors, Mr. Chairman. I think, number one, uh, I had the opportunity to work with uh, former Governor Jeb Bush on a commission uh, of, on Council on Foreign Relations on immigration reform, a subject that the Senate uh, has, has dealt with for many years now. Uh, border security is absolutely crucial. I think we have strengthened that. I think there are a number of tools from a technological standpoint as well as the commitment and just better coordination with our Mexican counterparts that have to continue to deepen and strengthen. I think that's been part of it. But we've also seen, as Dr. O'Neill and, and Mr. Farnsworth noted, a strengthening of the Mexican economy itself with some of the reforms that I think yet will even improve their economy more. So we've seen uh, a strengthening of economy and jobs availability there. So I think that has helped a great deal. Uh, I think particularly with the energy reforms in Mexico, you will see an increasingly competitive environment in, in Mexico, and I think that will add to the economic, uh, their economic growth in the future. So I think it's a combination of things. I think it's absolutely crucial, and I appreciate the chairman underscoring that that situation has dramatically changed in the last three years. Let me just add two points to, okay. to Mac's um, issues, which are, are two of the, the fundamental issues. One is the demographics in Mexico. And so the number of Mexicans turning 18 each year is falling dramatically because of declining birth rates in Mexico, which are now very similar to ours, about 2.1, 2.2 kids per family. So compared to the height of Mexican immigration in the early 2000s, today there's somewhere between 100 and 200,000 fewer Mexicans just turning 18 every year and needing to enter the job market, whether in Mexico or here. So one reason is demographics. Another big shift in Mexico is in education. And today the average Mexican stays in school twice as long as he or she did 20 years ago. And so the average 15-year-old today in Mexico is thinking about the tests they have on Friday, not on whether they will migrate to the United States. And those two factors mm. look to be long-term shifts that won't go back, um, whatever happens to the U.S. economy or at the border. Yeah. You want to add anything, Eric, or are we covered? I think you've covered it pretty well. I think that uh, to the extent this is primarily driven by economic considerations, the relative strength of the U.S. economy vis-a-vis -vis Mexico is a critically important factor, but I would concur with the comments of my other two colleagues. So uh, how would U.S. foreign direct investment uh, in the region compare qualitatively or quantitatively to what China and or Europe may be doing? Well, Mr. Chairman, I think one major change in the region uh, from the time that Mr. Farnsworth and I had the opportunity to work together in the White House is the U United States is not the only single or dominant uh, actor or player in the region. Uh, Brazil's largest trading relationship, for example, is now China. But I think this is a unique opportunity, and from our family standpoint, led by our older son, we have been investors in Brazil for 16 years in the automotive sector where we've been involved for four generations, and in Mexico. So we believe in the region in terms of opportunities and growth because of the factors that we, we know here. I think this is an ideal time for the United States investors, both smaller privately held companies and large corporations, to increase their foreign direct investment in the region 
particularly, frankly, with a, a strong dollar. So I think it's a unique opportunity. Any other? Yes, sir. I think it's a critically important question. Thank you for asking it, Mr. Chairman. In my personal view, the entrance of China economically into the Western Hemisphere, particularly South America, has been one of the transformative issues over the last decade, primarily built on the commodities, primarily built on new investment that the Chinese have brought. But the Chinese have also brought new ways of doing business that in some ways differ from uh, the United States. In other words, there are different standards of uh, public disclosure, transparency, anti-corruption, different standards perhaps of environmental protection, labor laws, et cetera, et cetera. Chinese investors are learning. Uh, we have to remember it's really only been about a decade since you've seen that initial wave of investment into the region. So there is a learning curve. It's not as advanced perhaps as Chinese investment into Africa. Um, and, and we're seeing more now of, a, of a, a attention to social development issues and, and, and job creation on the local economy, not just bringing Chinese workers uh, abroad. But it is a bit of a challenge. And I think uh, from the United States investor perspective, we still have a very important uh, advantage, both in terms of quality, in terms of uh, the ability to uh, interact in terms of a certain value set with our Latin American and Caribbean neighbors and partners. And, and these are valued issues in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere. So I think as, the, as China continues to slow and as commodity markets continue re to reduce, and that's directly impacting the relationship, the economic relationship uh, with Latin America, I think, as Max said, this is a real opportunity for the United States because now the region is looking for a per particular re-engagement with the U.S. Mm -hmm. Dr. O'Neill, you, you mentioned the, the global supply chains and, and Mexico. To what degree uh, is the Mexican economy integrated into global supply chains, and how is that affecting our own competitiveness uh, here in the U.S.? So in Mexico, especially since NAFTA 20-plus years ago, has integrated into a North American supply chain. So 80-plus percent of Mexican exports come here to the United States. But so do, it's one of our top exporting uh, nations. So the back and forth is really what's happening. Canada is included in this to a lesser extent. And so when you see you know, an average car that goes back and forth, it will go across the border eight times where a part from here comes to the United States, something is added here, goes back to Mexico, and you'll see this back and forth before it becomes a car that's sold uh, in, a, in a local dealership, whether here in the United States or sold in Mexico. And that spreads across a variety of industries, whether it's cars or aerospace or electronics or others. This is sort of the new Mexico, or at least a new part of Mexico. And this is the part of the Mexico economy that is booming, um, the one that is tied to the United States. And because of these ties, North America, so the United States included, is able to become increasingly competitive in sending those goods around the world. So North American cars increasingly end up being sold not just in North America, but also in South America. So this is a huge transformation, this creation of an underlying economic platform that ties Mexico to the United States that frankly wasn't the reality just 20 years ago. Any additional comments or we covered there? Uh, thank you all very much, Senator Cardin. Well, let me also join the chairman in thanking you all for your, for your testimony. Uh, Dr. O'Neill, um, I agree completely with your, how you prioritize anti-corruption and rule of law issues. Uh, I make an observation. Uh, thanks for the plug for Global Magnitsky. We've passed it in the Senate. It's now in the House. Hopefully we'll get action on that. Uh, and uh, in regards to corruption indicators, uh, this committee did take some action in this year in a, a reauthorization of the State Department bill. It has not been enacted, but 
uh, starts down the process of evaluation of corruption, uh, which would very much uh, could play a role in uh, U.S. development assistance. So we are very much mindful. But here's the challenge. The challenge is that we have a lot of countries where the leadership really would like to fight corruption, but are they capable of fighting corruption? Uh, the Northern Triangle is of particular concern. And I want to start on a positive note, because uh, I do think Vice President Biden has done an incredible service uh, to the people of the Northern Triangle. I think our programs are working. I've been in the communities uh, in uh, uh, Honduras and El Salvador and seen firsthand the USAID programs for the neighborhoods. I have been with the FBI in their, uh, their anti-gang activities. Uh, all these are very important efforts, and I don't want to minimize it, and I support the $750 million program. Having said that, the neighborhoods are not safe. You've got corruption, you've got extortion, you've got trafficking, you've got drugs, and the gang cliques control the country's economy almost, many of these countries' economies. So what, is there something we're missing as to how we can get more consequential change in the Northern Triangle for the safety of the communities and to fight corruption. Because I must tell you, I don't know whether our ultimate policy is for a prosperous, safe, democratic country for its people, or our concern that uh, the migration of people from the Northern Triangle to the United States which I think has misguided that part of our policy. So is there something more that we're missing? Because I must tell you, it is still, I mean, it is very challenging to see all the tools that we're using making a consequential, real consequential change for the people who live in these vulnerable neighborhoods. Let me start and then, and then I'll have you join in. Any place like a central, with these Central American nations, the weakness of the institutions, the increase in violence, nothing's going to change overnight. And this will be a long process. And I think there are several aspects to what we and the people who live in these countries would want changed. And one is, as you mentioned, basic safety. You want to be able to be safe in your home, to be safe on your streets. And here, we are helping. Um, but as important, we look at other programs like Plan Colombia, other places that have reduced violence it's as important that the local governments also step in and participate. So for every dollar we put into Plan Colombia, Colombia put in $10. So part of it is leveraging resources. So we participate, but so too do those governments. Part of it is looking at the programs that we have, and we have a lot of great programs, and actually looking at the evaluations that have been done on some of the programs, particularly the CARSI programs, um, the previous to the Alliance for um, Prosperity programs. And the ones that seem to make the biggest difference on violence were prevention programs, both for those not to come into gangs and then also reaching out to those who are already in gangs and trying to bring them out. So some of the local community prevention programs seem to make a bigger difference in terms of reducing violence and increasing confidence in government and the like um, than perhaps providing training, enforcement, and other types of things. So perhaps moving some of our focus to those types of programs. Another factor in looking at some of the statistical evaluations that have been done out of the um, Vanderbilt University uh, is education. And while often we think about first stopping the violence and then turning to things like building up education, increasing education had a direct correlation with reducing violence. And so I think 
those socioeconomic types of programs we should be prioritizing starting from the beginning um, rather than waiting perhaps for safety to improve. That's one side. The other side of your question is about corruption and transparency. And while violence and corruption are related, they're also two different things. And here I think the challenge sometimes is one, having government officials that want to focus on these things, but two, as you say, capacity. And how do we build capacity? And there I do think you start um, to try to create autonomous, independent organizations that can take them on, right? Untouchable units. And we've seen this in Brazil. You've seen prosecutors and others actually go after the highest people. We've seen this in Guatemala, aided by the UN agency, the CISIG body. Um, and I would hope that the new body set up by the OAS um, or with the OAS in Honduras could try to begin to chip away at this impunity um, that we've seen for so many years. Mac, what else can we do here? Well, first of all, there are no easy or quick answers to be realistic and candid, but I would make three quick points, uh, Senator Cardin. Number one, when I traveled to Columbia during my time in the White House, it, it, many thought that was just a hopeless situation. The country was lost. I do think U.S. engagement on a bipartisan basis, not just with dollars, but the engagement itself and with the leadership and responsibility of the Colombian people truly achieved a miracle turnaround there. So it can be done, but over time. So U.S. engagement makes a difference for sure. Number two, you have to have responsible leadership within the countries. It is more difficult, likely, in Central America than a larger a country like Colombia, but it can be done. And number three, I think some of our Latin countries and leaders there are going to have to step up and give their support because it's in their interest as well. And we're already seeing that. Mexico particularly has a direct interest in Central America, and we're already seeing some of the procedures, processes, practices that were done in Colombia with law enforcement now being trying to put uh, to be implemented in some of the Northern Triangle countries. So those would be the three recommendations or three thoughts, suggestions that I would put forward. Mr. Vansworth. Well, thank you for the opportunity to add to what my colleagues have said. Let me just add one thing that I think will contribute, indeed, to what both have already said, and that is that, you know, you have to provide alternatives for people. Otherwise, particularly uh, young men of a certain demographic will join a gang or try to migrate. I mean, those are really the options. The third option needs to be a good job. Education is important, obviously, but you also need to bring investment. You also have to have a business climate that will stimulate uh, a productive sector. And we've already have the Central America Free Trade Agreement with Central America, bipartisan uh, agreement, uh, very, very important. But that's really just getting Central America to the starting line. That doesn't really guarantee success. One of the things that I think needs to be um, emphasized more and more in Central America, indeed across the region, is that corruption, lack of law uh, enforcement or rule of law, gang warfare, these are disincentives to investment. And to the extent you're trying to bring that, uh, that business and job creation to your country, which is already small, which has already have challenges in a global economy, uh, you really need to clean that up and make yourself a model for uh, investment and job creation. I think over time that can, that can help. I think we also have to recognize, uh, the, the second thing I would say, however, is uh, some of this is a, a fact of geography and history. I mean, Central America is on a pathway between the world's largest producer of illegal narcotics and the world's largest consumer. 
and somehow Central America is going to be a bridge. So that's point number one. Point number two in terms of history, after the brutal Central American wars of the 1980s and early 1990s, which are thankfully concluded, but there wasn't enough attention given to the actual implementation of peace accords. So you had demobilized guerrillas who really had no particular skills other than firing a weapon. Well, if you have a weapon and no particular skills, and your political moment is over, what are you going to do? Turn to crime. And that indeed is what many have done in El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras, etc. And so this really has implications in terms of Colombia looking forward to implementation of the peace process. Some, some ideas to think about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses for your testimony today. Uh, I recently had the opportunity to visit uh, in Mexico City with members of the government, talking to the Minister of, Def of excuse me, Foreign Affairs and um, talking to business leaders and others. Uh, and it's clear that the determination of whether the Pax for Mexico is successful really does mean uh, a difference between economic success, education success. I think you, uh, I, when I walked in a little bit late, I believe you were talking about some of the reforms made to uh, the judicial system. Uh, which of these reforms, though, do you believe is, is perhaps more important than the others in terms of success? Obviously, all of them are uh, very important, whether it's uh, reforms in education and, and how the unions are, are handled, whether it's uh, energy reforms and bringing in outside investment. But to me, the judicial reforms and education reforms seem like two critical keys to this. Could you talk a little bit about the Pact for Mexico, or Mac, if you'd like to, or, uh, or Dr. O'Neill, any of you, to talk about which of these do we really need to see success to build on for success of the other components of the Pact for Mexico? I'll start briefly and then uh, defer to Dr. O'Neill. Uh, Senator Gardner, I think you have to do all of the above. Uh, and, and I think with Mexico, the, the trend line is clearly encouraging. If you look at the building of the middle class, if you look at direct foreign investment, any measure that you, environmental standards and so forth, the trend line is favorable. Mexico has achieved, I think, a high degree of, uh, of sophistication and competence in their central bank, for example, and that's been a great stabilizer in their economy, an independent central bank. The reforms by the Peña Nieto administration are historic. They've been across the board. They have not yet taken fully effect. You, you noted the reforms, not just from the economic side, as important as they are, because without job creation, you're, you're not going to continue to have that positive trend line, but also in education, reforming some of the, the tight hold that the unions had in, in education, for example, in Mexico, across the board. But the rule of law, the judicial system, with Mexico now having a very uh, assertive and free press has got to be strengthened uh, for Mexico truly to move to the next level and continue this positive trend line. I think with the North American platform, which we've all spoken about in our own way, there is a tremendous opportunity, not only for our, our partners and neighbors in Mexico, but for our country and for Canada. Dr. Renew. Um, in echoing uh, some of Max's comments there, I mean, the reform package, there were a set of economic reforms where Mexico, you know, over the last 20 years has opened up its macro side, it's opened up to the world commercially, but it had yet to get through the bottlenecks in its own economy. So it's new antitrust laws, it's new telecommunication laws, it's energy laws were opening up monopolies or oligopies that were there. That's, that's the point of these, which still has yet to do, but I think there's some encouraging signs. But these other two that particularly you bring up, the education reform and the judicial reform, I think these are fundamental to really changing Mexico. And the education reform is vital 
because as you look at Mexico, Mexico is not and never will be and shouldn't want to be the lowest cost producer in the world. There are going to be other countries that are going to do that. But what it does need to do is be one of the most productive in the world. And particularly since Mexico is increasingly linked to our workers, to our economy, to our companies, we want them to be productive so we can present this competitive uh, position vis-a-vis -vis China or vis-a-vis -vis other places around the world. So how do you do that? How do you, well, you need a 21st century education, right? You need workers who can use robotics, who can invent robotics, who can do the kinds of things that we would like our workers to do as well because they're working together. And this education reform at least begins to move the public system towards that. And an interesting aspect of this is so many Mex Mexicans know education matters for them that we've seen this movement out of the public system to the private system. So today a quarter of Mexicans students are in private schools, not just the wealthy kids, but the middle class, because people know, parents know, this is your ticket to the future. So one, this education reform, I think it's important, so you see inclusive growth there. All Mexicans have a chance of better education. And then let me just say a thing about the judicial reform, because I think this is vital. Yeah, is. Mexico is in the process right now moving from a more inquisitorial system, a written system, to an accusatorial system, an oral system, somewhat like our own. And this should make it more transparent. It should make it less corrupt. It should make it uh, more, and also provide due process and the like for those that are arrested, that you know are defendants. Um, but what it will do, hopefully, if implemented and works well, is help with this rule of law issues. Because the biggest challenge in Mexico, and I hear this when I talk to people who think about investing there, is it's great in terms of workers, it's great in terms of logistics, it's great in terms of access to the United States, but what do you think about security? Can I protect people? Or if I invest there, will my investment be safe if there's some sort of uh, dispute with partners or others? And I think if you implement a much stronger rule of law, that is the challenge Mexico has today. And I, the judicial reform, if implemented, I think will help move it that direction. It's not a panacea, but we'll move it in a direction that will be beneficial for that country and to our country as well. And on judicial reform, I mean, we're talking about going from a system where basically you, you file a, a, a paper complaint with a, a judge and the judge and kind of goes back behind clo closed doors and makes a determination in essence, is that correct? To a system where the police officer who may be accusing somebody of a, of a crime is now going to be taking the stand in front of uh, the public. Is that the essence of the reform? It is, right? Before everything was written out, there were long, you know, things were written out. The prosecuting attorney had a very strong role. The defense attorney had a very limited role. This will be much more like our where you'll have cross-examinations, you'll be able to, all evidence will have to be brought into a court. Um, so it changes, it, the nature of the judges will change. So before it was one judge who started from the beginning all the way through, you'll have different judges. It's a totally different system. So one of Mexico's challenges is you need to retrain 30,000 plus court officials in the new system. You need to retrain 300,000 police officers to collect evidence that will be admissible in court. There's a lot of big shifts that need to happen. And even if you retrain them, you need to really improve the quality of that. So that's somewhere I do think the United States can continue to help in this aspect of, of promoting the reform and improving the quality. Thank you very much. Mr. Farnsworth, I'm kind of neglected you if you have anything to add on this. No, I would highlight the energy reforms, which uh, indeed I agree with everything that's been said, but the energy reforms, uh, in my view, are what the international community is really focusing on because it's the potential in terms of investment and job creation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think we're going to see a very interesting um, uh, continuation and expansion of that later this year uh, when, as projected, the government of Mexico puts uh, out for bid the deep water 
licenses, which indeed is what most uh, attra has attracted most attention in terms of international investment. And the first attempt was a little bit of a disappointment, is that correct? Well, that's the impression, yes. I mean, I think that the, the uh, collapse of energy prices has something to do with the demand, um, as well as, again, this is an iterative process, it's a learning process. The government of Mexico admits that they did a couple things in terms of profits and this and that that uh, probably weren't as attractive to investors as they could have been. But as uh, energy continues a downward slide, and as the, uh, the bid processes continue, the government of Mexico has changed those terms, and I think you're going to see that uh, improve even further. Great. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Absolutely. Senator Kang. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the witnesses. I share your uh, sense that while there are challenges, it's a, it's a good moment, and it's a good moment for us to focus on what we can do to accelerate advances. If the peace deal is struck and there's a ceasefire in Colombia, I mean, you can get into a definitional argument here, but it's not only the end of this long-running guerrilla war, but there, you know, two continents without war. I don't know when there's been a time in history that the Americas have been without war. Um, Asia can't say that now. Africa can't say that now. Europe really can't say it with what's going on in the Ukraine. But to have two continents, 37 nations, a billion people without war, that's a pretty big deal. And the U.S. has played an, a very, very important role in getting to that moment. And I think as we celebrate, hopefully, with President Santos in a couple of weeks about Colombia's progress, we should also broaden the celebration to include a, a marking of that moment. Um, President Obama, in his budget submission about a year ago, put in the billion dollars for support for the Alliance for Prosperity. And the uh, budget that we passed a month ago, the appropriations about $750 million, which was very significant. I was speaking about this with the President of Honduras, who was here two days ago, very excited about it. A danger is what we would do with the $750 million is we would just do what we've already been doing and just plus up, you know, the, the accounts by a little bit or by a lot. And maybe we'd miss an opportunity to take an investment of that magnitude, which is significant, and really rethink it and really do things that really matter. The President Honduras, for example, thinks that the allocation of how much that money goes into CARSI versus economic development things may be too heavy on the CARSI side and too light on the development of the education or economic system. I hope we might think about having a hearing either in this committee or in the subcommittee about what's the best way to use that money and what, what are we expecting back? What metrics are we looking for? Because that's a big bipartisan commitment that we've all made. And at the front end, maybe get the State Department and others and say, well, what are you going to do with this money and how is it going to work? But as people who love this region, what advice would you give to us about how we should look at using that $750 million in the three Northern Triangle countries to really make a difference? Well, Senator Kane, I know you've been deeply engaged in, in this issue and you have a history uh, to, to, uh, to draw from in that regard. Uh, I think you're on the right track. I mean, in, in these times in, in our country and really in any times, the expenditure or investment of our money in any region, but particularly our neighbors, needs to be very carefully evaluated and there needs to be accountability. In my testimony, I had sharply drawn lines. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think at the same time, you have to get buy-in. We all understand that human dynamic. You have to get ownership from those responsible that really have the most to gain and the most to lose, and that's the people of the countries where we're trying to support. I would not underestimate, and if you talk to any of the Colombian leadership over the past three presidencies, they will say this, <coughs> where Plan Columbia has been a major part of, of, of that country's uh, history and future. U.S. engagement is equally important to U.S. commitment in dollars. 
And, and I think that's mm -hmm. another point worth making. Finally, I think you come up or make a, a great point that some degree of creativity here, I mean, the world's changing, and, and how these dollars are allocated, I think are quite important, and I think just a plus up, to use your appropriate term, is, is likely not the right way to go. So I think accountability is absolutely crucial, but I do commend the administration. I commend the members mm -hmm. of the Senate that supported the Alliance for Prosperity uh, PAC. Thank you, uh, Senator Kane. And as a Virginia resident, let me uh, mm -hmm. thank you for the opportunity to testify before absolutely. you as well. Um, I think this is exactly the right question. Um, and in my view, we can't see this as a continuation of business as usual. We have to view this as transformative. And frankly, the leaders in the Northern Triangle need to view it as transformative as well. And if we don't have that mindset going in, I think we're going to get the same results as generally we've always had. Let me just uh, add a couple things. One of the uh, challenges of Central America broadly, not just the, the three uh, Northern Triangle countries, has been cooperation, getting the countries in Central America to work together, to see themselves as allies and partners, not as competitors, not as, in some cases, enemies in the past, mm -hmm. but certainly mm -hmm. as, as, as um, in competition with each other. I think one of the challenges of law enforcement in the region is when one country cracks down, the bad guys just go to another country. There's law enforcement arbitrage. Uh, and so, for example, when Nicaragua has some success on law enforcement issues, the bad guys move north to, to Honduras. And, and as Honduras presumably has success, we'll see a similar shifting. We need to have a regional approach where we work together as a region, which will have benefits not just on the law enforcement side, but also, frankly, on the economic side, because as the world is going to uh, broader markets and global competitiveness, we have to consider that a country with a GDP the size of El Salvador, for example, really needs partners. Uh, to be competitive in a global environment. Sure, the United States, but also their other friends as well. And in that regard, uh, let me just say, I'm a strong supporter of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think it should be passed. I think it's a good uh, effort, and it will have an impact on Latin America. However, it will also potentially have a negative impact in Central America, for example, on the textiles and agriculture side. So while this is not an argument to not do TPP, I think it is an argument to look at what we can do to hold harmless those countries in Latin America, and particularly Central America, that might otherwise be negatively impacted and make sure that what we're doing with one hand to give $750 million is not taken away by the other hand in terms of our trade policy, but rather that we're working together to be mutually supportive. Very important point. My, my last question is just um, members of this committee, uh, other members of the committee, Senator Menendez and others, have really focused a lot on OAS reform. And my sense, not being an expert on the OAS, is it's an institution that has always, that has had um, possibilities, but is also, it, that has also been limited in its effectiveness for a variety of reasons. The stalemate over Cuba, a whole series of things have kind of limited its effectiveness. So as we look at the importance of institutions, in, the, in this new Latin American moment. What advice would you have for the committee on that? I mean, the OAS is a consensus body, so it will never be sort of a hard-driving leader on many issues. But I do think there's a time here where we can, we can revitalize it and revitalize our role in it. One is because the Cuba issue, which was very complicated in the OAS, is at least for the moment taken off the table. That's no longer what many countries just want to talk about in the OAS. Um, two, we have new leadership there, and this new leadership seems much more amenable to 
to standing up and calling up particularly democratic deficits in Venezuela. And so there's incredibly pointed um, and courageous letters, I would say, from the current Secretary General vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the elections in Venezuela. So I think there, there's a partner there that we can work with. Um, but the OAS, I do think, has played and will continue to play an important role as a place to have discussions with those in the hemisphere. So it's an ongoing place for, um, for us to talk about some of these worries, whether they are corruption, whether they are how do we help countries come out of some of the weak institutions? How do we help Central America? How do we bring in other neighbors to help Central America? So it's not just the United States thinking about working with El Salvador and Guatemala and, and, and Honduras, but how do we bring in the neighbors? The OAS, I think, is a vehicle to begin a lot of those conversations. So I, I do think there's a time to invest in it again. The other thing I would say with the OAS um, that could be very interesting is the new uh, investigative body that the OAS is funding for Honduras. And I, we've seen some of the successes that the UN-backed one has done in, in Guatemala, uh, and Honduras has such deep problems uh, today. Hopefully, that's something that we can see as a real achievement of the OAS as we look forward five or 10 years from now. Yeah, the only thing I would quickly add, I think institutions are critically important. The Inter-American Development Bank, I think, has played a vital role. I do think there's promise at the OAS, the potential has has generally it's been felt not been fulfilled. I think recent events, particularly with Venezuela, are encouraging. I would also say that some of the Americas, which I, I must say I'm not objective, but I think that's provided an architecture for continuing uh, dialogue and discussion and meetings on a regular basis. And it's critically important in my view, and I can't emphasize this point enough, sustained engagement from the United States, both from the White House and the Congress, is absolutely crucial to our standing and partnership in the region, Republican or Democrat. If you look at Plan Columbia, if you look at others, where we have had a continuity of engagement, it has made a real and significant and positive difference. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, as someone who has intimately followed Latin America for the 24 years that I've been in Congress, uh, I share some of your optimism, certainly as a strong advocate for Plan Columbia in the House of Representatives and helping to get the money. Uh, certainly, when I was the chair of the committee urging the administration to look at Central America in a different way than just as a refugee problem, I'm glad to see what we're doing there. But I must say that as I listened to your opening presentations, you had a rather rosy picture. Uh, and there are many elements that I would say you're right. But what I don't get a sense from your presentations and I'd like to pursue with you is the question of democracy and human rights. So give me a, a brief thumbnail sketch of your view of democracy and human rights in the hemisphere and, and give me where we put it in the order of importance to us in our uh, US Latin America policy. Mr. Farnsworth. Well, thank you very much, and I, I completely concur. You have been a leader on these issues for many years, and, and we thank you for that. Uh, what I tried to allude to in my testimony was that, indeed, I think that the support for democracy needs to take a higher uh, profile in terms of U.S. policy in the region. Um, I think there are challenges to democracy. Um, broadly speaking, the idea of democracy is accepted across the region as the basic underlying framework for governance. However, Democracy is practiced differently in different ways, and I think we have some real challenges. I've referred to Venezuela. Uh, we could refer to Ecuador, perhaps. Uh, there are other countries uh, throughout the region which you know, we could identify. I think that one of the things that would be helpful is if the United States, in concert with our 
friends, allies, and the OAS, for example. I think there's a new opportunity there. There's a new opportunity with the new president of Argentina, for example, can suggest that there are certain behaviors in the Western Hemisphere that are accepted and, 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 and expected. Uh, and that when a country democratically elects a legislature, the executive branch simply is uh, not, um, it, it's not legitimate for the executive branch to try to undermine that legislature, to take away its powers, to reduce its budget, to indeed create a parallel legislature, <laughs> to uh, create laws, to uh, pack the Supreme Court, which will... Sounds a lot like Venezuela. It does sound a lot like yeah. Venezuela. And, and my point is that I think there's a need and an opportunity to raise our voice in support of democracy. We're not anti any government, we're not anti any country, but there are principles that need to be obtained and maintained, and my view is that now is an opportunity, broadly speaking, to really pursue that. Yeah. Seems to me that that's uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the OAS Democratic Charter. Dr. Chen, Dr. O'Neill. You know, I, I started my remarks saying that the big change is that the region now is overwhelmingly democratic. And I do believe that. You look back 30 plus years ago, and it was many, many countries authoritarian, pure authoritarianism. And that is no longer the case. Now, have these countries become perfect democracies? They're not in any country around the world. And many of these do struggle to balance things. But I do see the shifts in many countries moving in a positive direction. I see the returns of checks and balances in some places, even where they have disappeared or, or been eroded, returning. So in the new government in Argentina, I think we'll see a return to checks and balances. Even the events in Venezuela over the last month or so, there is a check and balance there. Whether it will stand, it's being contested, um, but there is a return, and I see those as positive signs. One other thing that I see in terms of the checks and balances on a positive side is actually in some countries, not all countries, in some countries, the growth of an independent judiciary, which had never been there, right? And so we see this in Brazil. We're seeing this in Guatemala. You're seeing actually the strengthening of that third branch of government that for so many years had been so weak. So in that sense, it's, it's not perfect and it's, it's not done, but I think there's the start of a movement in a right direction, and, and particularly with reference to the OAS and the tools you have there to push forward democracy. I think for many years we were, if not a lone voice, uh, a, a small group um, that was thinking about the erosion of, of democratic norms and human rights in the region. And I'm somewhat hopeful that some of the changes we've seen just over the last year bring more allies uh, and people who will be willing to stand up to, to some of these erosions. So whether it's the new Macri government in Argentina or even some of the things that um, President Rousseff has said in Brazil, showing some limits to what mm. Venezuela can do. I think that is positive when we think about a democracy, pushing forward democracy and deepening democracy. Mm -hmm. I think many of our Latin American uh, neighbors use the issue of Cuba to excuse uh, the lack of democracy and human rights in many of their countries. So if, you're, if you have a view that, in fact, you don't subscribe to raising your voice about democracy and human rights violations in a country, therefore it will be reciprocated and you won't have anybody raise their voices as it relates to undemocratic uh, and human rights violations in another country. It's, it's very accommodating if you can do that. Uh, Mr. McClarty? Uh, Senator Mendez, first, thank, thank you for your uh, long engagement in the region. 
which I have certainly followed with uh, interest and, and admiration and respect. Secondly, um, I think the trend line is favorable, but we have a long way to go. I tried to emphasize in my opening uh, testimony and temper my remarks about the region. Indeed, it's facing some difficult economic headwinds. My point was I think you stand by your friends in difficult times, and I do think it presents a unique set of opportunities uh, for U.S. engagement in the region in a supportive and appropriate way. I also tried to underscore that in terms of commerce and trade and energy, all of which is important, they go hand in hand with the support of democracy, human rights, and the strengthening of civil society. Uh, part of, uh, I think, what's happened in a positive way in the region, but still a long way to go, a much freer press. I have long been involved, as I know you have, in the Inter-American Free Press Association, uh, protection of journalists, and so forth. I think we've also seen much uh, uh, more transparent election processes throughout the region. Unfortunately, what we've seen, where we've had relatively open, fair, and free elections, when someone is elected, then they consolidate power, change the Constitution, extend their, their tenure, and that becomes authoritarian reign. And that's what goes to my final comments about Venezuela, where we must be a relentless, reliable, and constructive ally of Venezuelans and others seeking to express their political rights. So I think mm -hmm. these have to go hand in hand. Bottom line. The region will not, in my opinion, develop as it should without strengthening the rule of law and institutions because it will not be able to attract investment in order to build a more secure future. Well, I, I certainly agree with that. Mr. Chairman, let me just say, um, maybe it's my desire to make things better that doesn't always have me look at the rosiest things because I, we I don't, don't think you, you, you can be, it would be stated that you always look at rosy things. I think that's right. But you don't make things better by ignoring the things that aren't that. good. Uh, and that's been my experience in 42 years of public life, that you try to, yes, rejoice in what you can, but the way that you make lives better is by trying to change that, no which is negative. And I just want to just very briefly just say, you know, I think we give a lower tier category to democracy and human rights, particularly in Latin America. We are willing to look at the economic side of things. Uh, and for some, let's just keep people uh, you know, in their country, even though they face uh, gangs and narco-trafficking and certain death if they stay, and that's why people flee. They don't flee, be those are beautiful countries, uh, but they flee only because they are in a situation where I stay or die or I take my risk to go north. Changing that dynamic is good for the people of the region. It's good for the United States of America in terms of its interests. I, I look at democracy, and I just don't think elections are democracy. And when you see constitutional changes which permit presidents to run forever, uh, you have to wonder, is that democracy? Uh, when you see uh, uh, people whose human rights are violated who are thrown in jail simply uh, because they try to create peaceful change in their country or who are beaten savagely like the women in white in Cuba who just march to church every Sunday in peaceful protests and are beaten savagely, uh, we basically don't hear much about that. If that was in some other country in the world, you know, and I know some of my colleagues are very strong human rights advocates, but it's a whimper there. It's an outcry someplace else. I think about what is happening uh, in Venezuela, 
And I'm glad to see Mr. Farnsworth speak to that because at the end of the day, there are some who suggested that, you know, we should just keep our hands off and not try to be supportive of the opposition in Venezuela, including the Assistant Secretary uh, for Latin America who testified when I was the chairman that the, op that the opposition in Venezuela didn't want to see uh, the sanctions legislation that we offered, which ended up being an uproar because the opposition said that's never what they said. Uh, so I just, I see that, I see parts of Mexico, and I, I think Peña Nieto has done a fantastic job in the reforms, but I also realize that when I listen to some of my colleagues along the southern border, and I've met with citizens of the United States who do business in that part of Mexico, where the federal government in Mexico really doesn't have control of elements of that. And so you have to worry about that in the national interests of the United States. Uh, and uh, I also look at, um, we get beaten in infrastructure investment throughout the hemisphere all the time. Uh, I just did a map of every major project and except for a handful, uh, China or Brazil beat us across the board in infrastructure investment. TPP, I'm worried about what we're gonna do to CAFTA, because if you're on one hand trying to strengthen the economies of those countries, rule of law and whatnot, and under CAFTA, you're gonna, uh, under TPP, you're gonna basically undermine the benefit they got in CAFTA, that's a problem. I see the Zika virus and increasing health issues in the hemisphere, which know no borders. So I, I do rejoice in many of the things, but I can't uh, allow a hearing go by in which we are largely in applause and have no concerns. And so there's a lot to do, Mr. Chairman, and I hope both the subcommittee chair and, and you will continue to look at the region uh, beyond this macro one-shot view, because I think there are many things that are not just our interest in being a good neighbor, but in our own interest on immigration, on economic opportunity, and on strengthening democracy, which at the end of the day uh, ends up being in our national interest as well as the, the people of those countries, uh, that they can fulfill their God-given potential without being oppressed in seeking to do so. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, I, I think your long-term involvement, as has been mentioned by the witnesses, uh, but your critical eye and concern and um, is hugely beneficial to all of us. I think one of the things that sometimes also doesn't happen, though, is for some reason uh, we don't see the potential that in the event uh, these types of issues are able to be overcome, I don't think there's as much focus here in the United States about the vast potential and the benefit to our nation if those things can be overcome. And I know this hearing is focused on that, uh, but I don't think in any way it was meant to diminish some of the problems that exist in the region. And uh, personally, I cannot thank you enough for your uh, incredible depth of knowledge and concern and continually raising those issues. So um, anyway, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for us. I think that's what these witnesses are stating, but there's no question uh, these other issues diminish those opportunities and certainly those opportunities for the individuals whose human rights uh, are being uh, desecrated. So. Thank you. Senator Udall. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Chairman Corker. And I, I couldn't agree with you and, and uh, Senator Mendes and, and uh, uh, Senator Cardin in terms of democracy and, and uh, human rights and what we 
what we need to do in the region. I, I wanted to focus a, a little bit on, and I thank you for, I've been listening here to a lot of your testimony, waiting in line to, to participate, and it, you've, been, you've given some very, um, I think, thoughtful approaches to us on the challenges in Latin America, and, and I, um, I'd like to focus you on the migration issue in particular, uh, and that's because uh, it really has a direct impact on New Mexico, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about that before I, I uh, um, ask a question. Beginning in 2014, as you know, and continuing to this day, there's been an influx of undocumented, uh, undocumented migrants, uh, many of them women and children from Central America's Northern Triangle, whether El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. As these uh, migrants flee their homes, they face many incredible dangers uh, traveling along the way. Many are claiming refugee status, as you well know, uh, to escape gangs in Central America and other violence and those kinds of things. And for those who may be refugees, we have an obligation, I think, to adjudicate their cases carefully. And I think we're, we're trying to do that at the, at the uh, federal executive level. But until that happens, um, these children will be housed in leased property on an Air Force base in New Mexico, Holloman Air Force Base, which is located near White Sands in southern New Mexico. And as a result, as many as 700 of these children may have a temporary home uh, in New Mexico. And uh, so there's really a bigger question here. Many Americans are wondering why are children fleeing uh, and what are the root causes of the children fleeing? Um, and I'm wondering if on this migration issue, if, if there aren't some lessons to be learned from the North. My understanding is that the net migration between the United States and Mexico is reported to be net zero. Um, how did this happen? What factors have contributed to this outcome? Is some of that applicable to what happened in the Northern Triangle? And, and uh, whoever wants to start, I'm happy to hear from Mac or Shannon, Dr. O'Neill. I'll be very brief because I think Dr. O'Neill spoke to this uh, yeah. perhaps a bit. Uh, Senator Hudal, before you were able to join us, thank you. For yeah, and I, I apologize. I oh, wish no. I could have been here oh, for no. the whole thing. No, no. I really your, do. Your, your engagement <laughs> dedication has never, never been in question, I don't think, at all. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, I think uh, Dr. O'Neill pointed out in Mexico is really what you were talking and what, about. And I know she mentioned but, but, this because my staff told me, but what I would add on yeah, top of also yeah, for yeah, you ahead, please. is the is Senator Kane talked about the 750 right, million. That's where I was going. And, and the question focusing on migration, how could that best be used that's in it. order to, to uh, get to our net situation yeah. that we have in Mexico. Yeah, yeah please, I think, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 I think you've no. got exactly the, the link uh, of, of the two issues. I, I think in Mexico you had a more developed, uh, stronger uh, economy and country, and therefore some of the reforms in education with some help from the demographics and so forth, job creation with the integration of the North American platform, all of which has helped. Very m much more fragile situation in Central America. And that's where the $750 million is going to have to be spent very, very thoughtfully, creatively, and effectively. And those problems, in my judgment, are going to be more difficult to solve, and they will not be solved overnight. So I think you, you do have to go, though, Senator, to the root of the, the issue there in country, because otherwise we have a Hobson's choice of a humanitarian decisions to make. 
So with that, I, Dr. O'Neill, I'll let you pick it up from, from there. But I think that you've got the right link, in my view, between what has worked reasonably effectively with Mexico going to the Northern Triangle. Yeah. Dr. O'Neill. Let me, let me add on to, to Max's comments. And, and many of those that are looking carefully at what's happening in Central America see sort of three factors that are, or three main factors that are driving um, the influx up to our border. One is, is violence. And in many of these communities, especially young people are given the choice of joining a gang, being killed, or leaving. That's the choice in some, in some neighborhoods, in some communities. Um, and so that violence uh, is driving them to our borders. Another issue is economic opportunity, right? We've talked a bit about the lack of jobs. We've talked a bit about the lack of education. And today, some two million young Central Americans are what they call in Spanish, ninis. They don't work and they don't study. So there's two million people, young people who, who are in this flux. They don't have a, a sort of legal role to play or nor are they in school. So that's a challenge. And then the third are the family ties. And there have been some surveys of those that are coming up to the border and the vast majority of them have, especially the young people, have either their mother or father that actually live here in the United States. So as they're trying to get away from violence, as they're in these desperate straits, they're coming to join their parents, right? And the, the other parts have, have close relatives. So those are sort of the three factors. I mean, one of the other things that we know about the violence in the Northern Triangle countries, it's, it's often very focused. So you'll have neighborhoods that are incredibly violent and not that far away will be places that aren't that violent. So it's not a blanket equal violence. There's some places that are extreme and other places that aren't so bad. And so I do think as we start thinking about how to use these $750 million effectively, one is to target those areas. It's not a broad-based uh, broad approach, but target the places that are the most violent, that do have the fewest opportunities, uh, and where these migrants are coming from, and see what we can do in those actual localities, those sets of streets even, versus just broadly throughout a whole city. Um, and I think the other thing is that we should take the time through the State Department or others to really look at the metrics that we're measuring. What are the programs that are successful? And measuring inputs, how many officers were trained or how many you know, um, vehicles did we provide? I'm not sure those are the most effective measures. What we care about is reducing violence and creating opportunities. And so I think those should be metrics that we think about evaluating the programs that we might then scale up or expand to other municipalities. And, and is, your, is your judgment right now, from what all of you know of the programs that we fund now, are they doing that targeting of the communities where there's the real problem? Or, or would you need to, to reevaluate or actually target it, target it in a more uh, aggressive way on those communities? My understanding is that there are programs yeah. that are doing that but that not all programs are created equal in terms yeah. of the impact they have on the ground. And so I think a real evaluation of the programs we have, a widespread evaluation, and then taking the ones that seem to be the most effective and expanding those versus others that, that may not have sort of the bang for the buck. Yeah. Mac, did you have something? I think very much like in, in a business, I, I think, uh, I think uh, the, the, the proper people in, in the government, including the Congress, need to have a very, very vigilant and sharp eye on this major investment to really see what is making a difference. It's not going to be easy, but again, we have seen examples in Colombia, for example, where our engagement has made a difference, but yeah. only with the responsibility and buy-in of the leadership within the country. Right. So I think intense focus on where the money's being spent in terms of accountability and also some fresh thinking is needed here. 
Yeah, Did Mr. Farnsworth. Thank you for the opportunity. Let me just very quickly say one of the things that seems to be a little bit different about the migration patterns from Central America versus Mexico is, is the surge of unaccompanied minors. Uh, and, you, you know, this adds a, a, an element of real pain and concern. I, I have an 11-year-old son. I can't imagine putting him on a bus from Honduras in the, in the care of a coyote and, you know, maybe to get to Chicago or someplace uh, in the north to visit with an aunt or something like this. It must be so desperate that parents are willing to do that with their unaccompanied children. And to me, um, that speaks to, you know, it's got to be really bad to be, and whether it's a community, whether it's, you know, but, but that's the decision families are making. And I think for us to be effective, we have to recognize how desperate it really is and somehow get to that point where people find that it's in their interest to keep their kids at home rather than putting them on a dangerous hundreds of mile journey to the United States. Thank you very much. I just want to say that again because I think you've given us some very, very important testimony today. And I would, I would uh, um, Chairman Corker and Senator Cardin, I would echo what Senator um, Kane said. I think it's tremendously important that we um, look at this major investment of $750 million and do some oversight and, and maybe call the administration in in terms of, you know, what, what are your plans here and how do you plan, plan to tackle the things like the violence and the migration and the root causes that we've been talking about. Thank you very much. And thank, thank you for your thank you so courtesies and going over time here. Absolutely. I know Senator Cardin has a follow-up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And to Senator Udall, I couldn't agree with you more. And I must tell you, I think you know, we, we do um, uh, travel whenever we can because it's useful. And just being there and seeing the communities, it just breaks your heart. And it's, it's not only about making sure they're safe, it's that they have a future. And I think your point about economic issues or and education I thought was a very strong point. I want to just ask a, a question on Venezuela. Uh, you had the elections. Very exciting. What should the United States be doing now in order to deal with the realities of the, with the government of Venezuela, uh, recognizing the election, but recognizing who the leader of the country is? Well, I'd be happy to jump in with a couple ideas, uh, because then I can take the easier ideas, and then my colleagues have to come up with the more difficult ones. But uh, thank you for the opportunity. I, you know, first of all, we have to recognize it is a political crisis. It is a challenge to democracy, and I think we have to start from there. Second, I think the United States can play a role and needs to play a leadership role, but cannot do it by ourselves. In the past, we've found, whether it's Venezuela or other countries, that to the extent we've been too far out in front, it sometimes becomes counterproductive, uh, particularly if we don't have regional friends and allies together with us. I think working with the new Secretary General of the OAS, Luis Almagro, uh, who has taken a courageous position on the Venezuela issue, as well as some perhaps newly elected leaders, but also leaders uh, such as the new, the, not new, but the president of Colombia, who will be in here in a couple weeks, uh, talking about Colombian issues. But we have a lot of friends in the region, and I think it's now is a time to really go to them and say, together, can we not stand up for democracy in Venezuela? I think you know, there's an, also an interesting um, opportunity at the United Nations. 
the fact is that uh, Venezuela is on the U UN Security Council. Why not uh, put together a contact group of interested countries from the United Nations perspective to try to engage with the executive in a way that will help build political space for the opposition, build political space in Venezuela for the legislature to do what the legislature has been elected to do and what is expected to be done by the Venezuelan people. I think the final thing is from the United States perspective, uh, we have uh, begun to identify individuals in, in Venezuela who have uh, been alleged to be engaged in uh, corrupt activities, drug trafficking, what have you, I think that's appropriate, uh, subject to U.S. law, based on the fact that this really does create disincentives uh, for people to engage in further behavior to the extent that they might recognize that they'll be uh, recognized publicly uh, and maybe subject to law enforcement actions down the road. So it does have a chilling effect in, in some way in terms of further activities uh, down the line. Let me just add a couple of things, and, and reiterating that I think we should speak out, um, but it's stronger if it's with our neighbors and it's not just us alone. And I think we have some new options there. I mean, we have longstanding allies like Colombia, but we have perhaps the new government, Argentina. We have others to, to join with to really push the issue of democratic and the lack of democracy there. Um, I Echoing the, the sanctions, I think we should go after these corruption cases. And the, the other thing is, uh, anecdotal evidence or rumors suggest that many of the high-ranking military officers and others in the nation um, have um, sent their families to the United States to study to live. Um, and I think we should revoke their visas if we find them to be, you know, having abused human rights, if we find some of the undermined democracy, I think we have some mechanisms to do so and should, should pursue those. Uh, and then I think we should also be thinking about, which I know the administration has been somewhat, um, those countries that have benefited um, from some of Venezuela's largesse in terms of oil, um, Jamaica and others that whose economy may hit very difficult times already because of the worldwide issues, but may have some real issues there. I think there's places perhaps where we can reach out and, and help them deal with a very bumpy or volatile um, aspect of, of, their, of their economy with, with the expenses, increasing expenses in terms of energy and the like. Very quickly. Two laments you hear about the United States policy in Latin America is either that we're da dangerously disengaged or overly meddlesome, sometimes at the same time. <laughs> and uh, I, I really think, Senator Cardin, in terms of Venezuela, uh, we, we have to just exercise exquisite balance in how we deal with this. And I really mean that in a very serious manner. Uh, I think the opposition has been very pragmatic They've been very, very effective in gaining control of the parliament. Maduro does not come up for election until 2019 unless there's a referendum prior to that, which would be difficult to get with all the impediments in place. But I do think we can be very uh, assertive in certain situations, whether it be corruption or otherwise, and I think we should do that. I think we have to follow what Senator Menendez talked about in terms of speaking out for human rights and democracy. And this is a clear case where someone was elected in consolidated power. But I think we've got to be very careful not to proverbially overplay our hand here and somehow strengthen uh, or, or diminish what we're trying to achieve in terms of the overall objectives to help the Venezuelan people. Well, that's helpful. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for outstanding testimony. If uh, uh, the norm is we keep the record open, and this week it'll be to the close of Business Monday. If you would answer, as I know you will, promptly, we would appreciate it. Um, your insights have been most helpful, and we look uh, forward to continuing to work with you on issues relative to, to, to the region. Thank you all very much. And the meeting's adjourned. <laughs>